Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 58. O Lord, you have pleaded the case for my soul. You have redeemed my life. These are the words of the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, as he is often called. But notice how positively he speaks about God here. He does not say, I hope, or I trust, or I sometimes think that God has pleaded the case for my soul. He does not say, if only you would redeem my life. Instead, he speaks of it as a matter of fact that can't be disputed. You have pleaded the case for my soul. You have redeemed my life. Notice how, also how gratefully the prophet speaks, ascribing all glory to God alone. There is not a single word concerning himself or his own pleadings. He does not credit his deliverance in any measure to any man, much less to his own merit. Instead, he exclaims, You, O Lord, you have pleaded, you have redeemed. Here was a man who suffered severe persecution and witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. If there was ever a moment to doubt God, it was then. If ever there was a man who possibly could be justified for being angry with God, it was Jeremiah. And yet we find him grateful and trusting fully in God's care. Let us, the people of God, follow the prophet's example. Let us, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, shake off the doubts and fears which greatly ruin our peace and our comfort. When we are confronted with the seemingly harsh providences of God, we must do away with the croaking voice of doubt and suspicion and begin to speak with the clear, melodious voice of full assurance. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. O Lord, you have pleaded the case for my soul. You have redeemed my life. These are but a few examples of strong fear repellents from God's word. Bright flaming torches to drive away the darkness of doubt. Powerful seeds for reaping a harvest of gratefulness to God. Brothers and sisters, it is a grateful spirit that we must be cultivating. Not one of fear and skepticism. Our lives, our homes should be a temple filled with songs from the grateful saints. And every day should be like a censer smoking with the sweet incense of thanksgiving to God. There is no room for doubt or ingratitude when the creator of the heavens and the earth is for us and not against us. The creator of heavens and earth came down from heaven to be with us, gave his very life to redeem us, and will let nothing separate us from him. Dear saints, we are reminded by God's word of our sin. If you are willing able, please kneel with me. take a look and spend some time in this remarkable text today. And for whatever is going on in this scene, there's definitely a lot of gift measuring going on here. 
And as I first approached this passage, I thought the following question. Is the size of the gift important to God? Is the size of the gift important to God? Does God look down and see the gift for what it really is? Does he care about what and how much was given? Although the passage seems pretty straightforward, if I had this in a kid's sermon, you'd be able to get the, the point very quickly, but we can draw some really interesting things out of here. There, there may be go- more going on here than we would think at first glance. It's worthy of taking some time to think about the gifts and the size of gifts. But before we get too far, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance to be able to hear your word. I thank you that you've given us that, that precious gift of your word. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illumine our hearts today and that you would be uh, with me in the speaking of this. And if I say anything uh, amiss, please let it come to nothing and quickly. And if I miss something, please let it still come to the hearts nevertheless of everyone here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's take a look at the context for this passage and kind of set the stage for the drama that kind of unfolds here. We find this incident attested in two Gospels. We see it also in Luke uh, chapter 21. And as Mark tells us, Jesus has just finished lambasting and thrashing the Pharisees right there in the temple on their home court, so to speak. And he was talking about them devouring widows' houses and all their pomp and their circumstance. And now he's moved across the temple in the area called the Court of the Women. And he set himself down there and he is watching the proceedings and the procession of the givers. Now there are boxes uh, in that court that were there to collect the offerings. We learn from the Mishnah, if you look uh, at that, that these were called shofar boxes. And the shofar, I don't know if anybody, does anybody here know what a shofar is? Have you ever heard of that? It's, you've probably seen it. It's like one of those long ram horns that kind of spirals up and you kind of blow in. And I won't even try and make that sound, but it kind of like, that sort of thing. And it was kind of a, a call. It could be a call to worship, a call to war. It could be a lot of things, but it's, it's something that resonated. Well, they had these shofar boxes. And although it's not clear entirely why they were called that, uh, whether they had pictures of shofars on them, or more likely, the, the boxes were filled with some sort of, uh, or boxes were made so these, these pro, uh, projectiles came out of them like shofar boxes, and those are what you put your coins in, and then they kind of trickled down in there into the box there. And uh, uh, so no, nobody's quite sure, but that's the uh, assumption there. And you know what, as the contributor would give, the coins would kind of clink, 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 all the way down there and make a large noise. And that, would make, that kind of plays into this whole scene here. And it's important to understand that. Um, in fact, I've given a, I, I have a little thing here. This is just, this is not mince. This is just meant to give a little sense of this. That if you were ha- having something, you were dropping it. And I'm going to miss with some of this. But that would be the sound that would, somebody else would come up. And somebody would drop a lot in there. Because remember back then, they didn't have paper money. They had all coins. So people would come up there and the rich would be dropping in lots of coins and the not-so-rich would a little bit less and so forth. But it was, it's important to know that it's immediately obvious to everybody how much the person is giving. You, you know, if somebody gives a $100 bill or a $1 bill, you're not going to know the difference because it doesn't make that. Well, it was immediately obvious then. So anyway, so in this, screen, in, in this uh, scene, you have, the, uh, you have Jesus there and the disciples. And uh, yes. Uh, and so to get an idea, you got Peter... 
Peter and the other disciples are not really paying attention. Peter's over there eating his PB and matzah or whatever he's doing, and John's over there trying to trade his veggies for hummus or something like that. They're not paying attention, but Jesus is paying attention. And doesn't that always see, seem to be the scene that the disciples don't really know what's going on, but Jesus is paying attention to the little things and understanding the big picture. So he's looking at both the little and the big at the same time. So anyways, this widow is in this long line of people who are in there to be able to give into the, uh, the offering shofar box. And as, as she kind of makes her way up there, she drops these two coins in there. Sometimes you've heard of them called a mite. Uh, the actual word for it is a lepton. It's basically a, a little, little tiny coin. And basically she had two of these things and she dropped them in there. And at that exact point, Jesus calls his disciples over to him. And notice he doesn't stand. Typically, rabbis didn't do much standing when they were teaching uh, there. And, and he says to them, I'll go back and read. He says to them, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, poverty put in everything, all that she had to live on. Some of your translations may say all that she had or her whole livelihood, basically all that she had to live on. So in this case, when Jesus calls them over, it's not a case of uh, where Jesus is calling someone out. I think sometimes it's very easy for us to look at this and say, oh, he's really kind of pointing out how the gifts of the rich are not, uh, all, are not great, or that they, there's something wrong with that, especially if you come out of the context of him really hitting the Pharisees there. But that's really not going on here at all. In fact, we have no indication that he's even upset with the wealthy patrons. They're actually doing something which they should be doing, uh, namely offering contributions to the temple. What Jesus is picking on, so to speak, is a general prevailing attitude of everyone there and what that attitude that they are having, that they were measuring the value of the gift by the size of the gift. So they were measuring the value of the gift by the size of the gift. It's measured by its magnitude. Now, we all tend to do this. Uh, there's a, it's a reality of material existence. Um, you know, you think of like patrons to PBS or the zoo or the opera or something else, which are, are worthy things to give to, but then they have like these different rankings that you can give and this. And if you give this, then you can be able to actually get, you know, like something else that's really not all that expensive, whatever, but they give you something, but they have all these different levels of giving. You've seen that at some churches where they have that or some uh, other places that they have levels, silver levels, gold levels, that sort of thing. There's a, a, a sense that we tend to bifurcate, trifurcate, and bre break out those different levels. And that's just part of human existence, realistically. But interesting, so in, in verse 41, that the rich tossed in much. So it's not that the rich were not giving. The rich were giving much, and in a certain sense, they could be commended to that. But the magnitude over the importance of the gift is quite literally the measure of the impact of the bag of silver that is hitting down in there to all those who hear. This is what Jesus is jumping all over, uh, that we tend to judge based on that money. And it seems to be clear that what Jesus is picking on here, it's not the size of the gift. It seems obvious that what Jesus is getting at is instead measuring the value gift, me measuring the value of the gift by the size of the gift. We need to be measuring the value of the gift by the sacrifice of the giver. That is, instead of measuring it by the, the size of the gift, measuring by the sacrifice of the giver. That is really how much of their wealth. 
The rich gave much, but she gave more, right? It's a proportional thing. But how exactly is that? Is that exactly what's going on here? You know, one thing that's kind of interesting when you start to dig into this a little bit, you see that the word that talks about, about the giving and the rich giving out of their abundance, that's the same word that's used when they talk about the feeding of the, of the 5,000 and that what they had was the, the leftovers afterwards. After everybody had filled themselves and were done, it's over, they had leftovers and, the, and, and then they gathered those back up. But that same word here is used. And so I think it's, it's insightful to try and say that they gave out of their leftovers. They gave out of what they had. They, they didn't need to use for themselves. They had had their fill and whatever, and they gave leftovers. So even though they gave much, they didn't give much of this. They gave much of the leftovers because they had much. So it wasn't, so it's not the portion, but the proportion that matters. And this is a biblical sort of thing. We see uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 12 and other places that the willingness, uh, it God looks at the willingness of the giver even if you don't have a lot to give. And that's a very good biblical truth. Uh, we, we, see, we see that also in 2 Samuel 24, 24. David says to uh, Arau, Arauna, I will not give offerings to the Lord which, which cost me nothing. So there must be a cost there, a sacrifice. And the implications of this are worthy. And, and, and I could really spend a lot of time talking about this, but that's not, not the point I'm going to make today. I'm not convinced that's all that Mark is trying to point out here. I think it's a, it's a truth to say that, that the sacrifice of the giver is much more than the gift, but I think there's more going on here. A lot of commentators kind of leave it off here when you read through things, and I think that's a mistake because I think there's some deeper things. It's really not even about proportionate giving. I know I said that a few minutes, that the text seems to put that way, but it's really not do that. We implicitly derive that from the word everything or all that we have there in verse 44. But other than that, there's really not much to indicate that this is indeed the full lesson. You don't see here any sort of proportionate language that Jesus is talking about, saying, well, that they, they, didn't, give, they didn't give enough of their wealth or something, and that she gave 100%, so that's the good thing. It's not really what Jesus, he's not trying to put people in different categories of, well, these give the 10%, these are the 20s, these are the 50s and the 100s, and you know, they're first in line. You don't see that. And Jesus is not, as I said before, even decrying the gifts that they give. It's a perfect opportunity to criticize or harsh on them if he wanted that opportunity. And that's not what he's doing. He's trying to teach the disciples something specific. It's something that we can learn as well. The rich gave much. They could have given twice as much as God expects for all that we know. We don't know. Uh, it isn't told there because that's not the point. What we do know is that the widow gave all that they did not. Now, did you notice, by the way, as an aside, did she, that she gave both leptons? She could have easily kept one. I just think that's an interesting thing that they throws in there, just the fact that she could have, it wasn't like she had her last penny and she couldn't split it in half. She had the option to be able to hold back, but she didn't. She gave both of what she had. And I think the key to understanding what I believe Mark is trying to say here is, to, is that what Jesus, excuse me, what Mark is trying to tell us that Jesus is saying here is to look at what he means by her whole life. It's often translated, as I said, as her whole living or all that she had or her whole livelihood, which figuratively takes the original language construction, which says her whole life, that she gave her whole life. Now, obviously, figuratively, she's not like going to keel over dead there on the spot. It's not giving of her life in that sense. So what is it? It's giving of her livelihood or all that she had. 
Now, it's important to understand the situation of a widow back then. And I think you've all heard this sort of thing, but a reminder that the widows back then had no means of support. They did not have an annuity of things coming in. They did not have, if their husband had died, they didn't have the money from there. Hopefully they would have some sons that could be able to help them along that way. But that's why the Bible, basically, when it's talking about who should we be able to, to have extreme compassion on and to be able to take care of, it's the widows and the orphans, the ones who have no means of support that we need to, as God's people, reach in and be their support. And here's a widow who doesn't have the support. Evidently, she doesn't have a lot of support because it's obvious because she only has two uh, little mites or two uh, leptons there. So, what does it take for someone to give everything? For this widow who has nothing, nor any future prospects most likely of anything, what does it take? I mean, what is it within you that that you have to, to wrestle with to be able to put those last two things in there? That's all you have. What, what does that take? It takes trust. It takes trust in God. And that, I think, is really what Mark is driving at here. Not so much the proportion of the giving or anything like that. It's not that somebody said, well, I gave 90%, so I'm really that. Well, that may, that's a good thing. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the heart and the trust that she has in God. And we're understanding that Jesus is remarking that she indeed gave more than all the rest, not because she proportionately gave more, but because she gave everything that she had, and that took trust. So, I go back to what I said before at the beginning, that we are actually meant to understand that the measure of the value of the gift is by the size of the gift, but we just misunderstood what the gift was. It wasn't the gift of the coins, it was because you probably said understood these things before. I don't know when, when you do offerings and think through it or talk through, maybe somebody's preached on it sometime, that the offering, God doesn't need our money. I mean, we have to remember that. I mean, yes, we're supposed to give, but that is our opportunity to be able to, to give over him, back to him part of us and who we are. And that's why Jesus is talking about money in so many parables, because it's not because he cares about money, but because we care so much about money and it it gathers us and holds us and if we are not able to let go of that and let go of that we're not letting go of ourselves so we misunderstood what we meant when we said gift when we said measure the value of the gift by the size of a gift the gift is the trust not the money the two coins that the widow gave were just the instrument so to speak for what she really gave she gave her whole life all she had and and her future trust all that she had over to god She didn't just give away something. She didn't just give up something. It wasn't just sacrifice. She gave over something to God. She gave over her future to God. She gave over her future while being in safekeeping in God's hands. She took Psalm 91 seriously and saw the Lord as her refuge. She understood that if God takes care of the lilies of the field, then his sovereign hands will provide for her surely as well. And she did not worry about tomorrow, but trusted that the Lord would provide and the Lord would bring her daily bread. Now, all those things I brought there are things that, obviously, maybe she did hear Jesus say some of the things. I, I brought them in of things that Jesus has said all along the lines. And so what I really think Jesus is essentially saying is like, here's somebody who gets this. Here's somebody who gets me and what I'm about. I'm going to be talking about not worrying about tomorrow. I'm going to be talking about the lilies of the field. I'm going to be talking about all these things. And here's somebody 
who understands that through the giving over of herself. And this is actually what Jesus was driving back, driving at back a few chapters in Mark when he was speaking to the rich young ruler or the, or the rich young man in Mark 10, 17. The, the young man trusted his wealth instead of God's provision. That was the key to that whole thing. You've probably heard that preached on before. People look at that and say, oh, see, it's the rich. It has nothing to do with that. It's the, the money that the rich had had a hold on his heart, and he couldn't give that over to God. So unlike everyone else there that was that day, this one widow gave herself. She gave her trust over to God. She didn't even have to turn up that day, realistically. I mean, who would blame her if she didn't show up and gave her last two pennies? No, nobody would blame her at all. But this plays into the application for us that I'm driving at here. Never miss an opportunity to trust God. I'll say that again. Never miss an opportunity to trust God. Because in that, God receives the praise and we receive the benefit. People get so caught up in trying to control things themselves that they miss out on the abundance and the sweetness of, that we experience when we trust in Jesus. So it's our opportunity to be able to trust God. Now often, we know, this runs antithetical to our nature. It, it, it's not in us so much of the time. It just does not come naturally. We want to control things, don't we? Because we, can, we feel like we can only trust in ourselves, right? Nobody's looking after us. Now we can say we know that God is looking over us but, uh, and watching over us, but so much of our time we spend not really living that out or living that way. So step back also for a second. What do I mean by the word trust? In this context, trust means handing your safekeeping, so to speak, over to another. I don't know, who here has seen the movie Princess Bride? Anybody seen that movie? A couple people? A few people wouldn't admit it? That sort of thing. Uh, yeah. Uh, one scene that I like in that, I'm not advocating it as a movie <coughs> overall, but one scene that I really like in that is, is where an eagle... Uh, Inigo Montoya, is that his name? He's standing at the top of the, the cliff there and you've got the, the man in black is down there and there's this discussion of that they're going on about him sending down the rope. And the whole guy, the guy who's standing at the top is supposed to fight with the guy who's, who's sitting on the side of the cliff. And he's like, can you kind of hurry up? I'm kind of waiting up here to be able to fight you. And he's like, well, kind of, you know, I'm thinking that if you put a rope down to me or something like that, that you would just let go or something, since that's what you're, you're really trying. So how am I going to trust you? And they go through this whole type, sort of thing, and it is an interesting thing. And the guy says, well, I give you my word as a Spaniard. And the guy's like, no good. I've known too many Spaniards. I don't trust you. But then he gives something that, and I don't have to go into the whole thing, but something that is of meaning to that man, and he trusts him, and he grabs that rope, and he pulls him up. So trusting your safekeeping over to another the difference, of course, is that we're not trust, uh, sa- trusting our safekeeping over to another person, but we're trusting it to over to God. Now, God doesn't just give us some sort of obscure vow. He gives us a, a history of faithfulness, a history of coming through, a history of being faithful to us even when we aren't to Him. He's mighty, mighty to save and mighty in battle. He can save us. He can be trusted. Not one hair falls from our head without his say so. So can we too look up God, at God and, and let go of the precipice that we're clinging on to and hold on to the rope that he's lowered down for us? Do you trust him to be in control of the situation? That's a good question. 
So I go back. Never miss an opportunity to trust the Lord. Why? Why do I say that? Because if you don't trust God, you really short your chances to feel the fullness of God's faithfulness and his abundance. And if you don't trust God, I mean, you really do give up something. You give up control over to God. At least the perception of control. Because we really can't control the world around us nearly as much as we'd like to think so. But if we don't trust God, it's really our loss, not God's. I think sometimes we, we maybe nobody in this room, but so many Christians sometimes feel like we somehow deemed to grace our presence upon God or that we somehow have given a great gift to God. And the only gift to God and the only reason why we're, we're, told of him, or we're told of Him rejoicing in our trust in Him is because He knows that's what's best for us anyways and He wants what's best. Like a parent to a child of that, that trust in us or, you know, trust in me as a parent. I will, I will do you right. I'll make sure ev- that everything comes out in the end. Now, this is not, once again, one of those things of, like, your best life now or anything like that. It's that everything will come out, and we trust that God will make things happen for us and that we will be able to feel his abundance and the sweetness of his presence. So God delights in our trusting in him, not because he gets something out of it, because he loves us so much. We oftentimes sing or talk about wanting to draw nearer to God. But if we really want to draw nearer and closer to God, then we need to trust Him. To trust who He is and to trust what He's done. Great is His faithfulness. So kind of wrapping this up. The first thing we need to do, of course, is trust in Him for salvation. And if I'll just say, if there's anybody here who has never trusted their life, their whole future over to the Lord then you have your first opportunity to trust in him for your salvation. To trust Jesus, God in flesh. To take him at his word and to trust that he alone is the way and the truth and the life. And that there is no other way to eternal life and abundant joy. And if you have not trusted him for that, you need to do that. And you need to work through that with him. For all of those here who have already trusted in the name of Jesus... Why don't we really start trusting him all the more with all of ourselves, with all of our fears, putting away our very future needs in his hands? If we only trust Jesus, we need to start acting as if we trust. This is what Jesus pointed out in the widow. Her action proved her trust in God. She didn't just say she trusted God. She proved it through her actions. And I promise you, from God's word, that if you do this for the right reasons, not trying to earn favor, but rather are trying and daring to draw near to our Lord Jesus, that you will begin a new experience of joy in life. Why? Because the Bible tells us that that's what will happen. Now, I can't promise that everything will go well in life. Nobody can. The Bible doesn't even try and promise that. But the Lord implores us to trust Him that it's worth the risk. So where are we now? We're finally back to that first question that I asked here today. Is the size of the gift important to God? And my perhaps unexpected answer is yes. It is important. Except that the gift is trust, not the coins. The widow trusted the Lord with what little she had. The money was literally all that she had. It represented all that she had in life. And she trusted in the Lord for her future. To sustain her for her daily bread... She trusted him with her whole life. This leaves us with the final question. 
Will we trust the Lord with our own needs, our own future, and our own life, just like the widow did? I certainly hope that the answer is yes. And my prayer is that each one of us will have a chance this week to be able to put something over and to trust in the Lord in something great. If and when you do trust in the Lord, I am certain that you will find, as I have, that God is faithful and that God is indeed worthy of our trust. Never miss an opportunity to trust the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for difficult times. I thank you for those times that you give us to be able to learn that we can trust in you. Things are, when things go well, we praise your name and we are thankful for that. But we also learn from the Bible that we are to thank you for trials and temptations. To thank you because it helps us to be able to dig in more deeply into who we are to develop our character. And Lord, I pray, just as that widow was able to give all that she had, that we would learn to give more of what we have. Certainly the steps to be able to get that we can give over what we have, but to give over our trust in you and to know that you will take care of us. You will take care of our family and that we will never miss an opportunity to trust in you. And I pray that as we go away from here, that you would let this seed grow in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. season is a time more than any other time of the year of giving and receiving gifts. And when it comes to Christmas presents, all of us would agree that receiving them is fun and exciting. But we probably don't think much about what receiving a gift actually signifies. The Apostle Paul in Colossians speaks of us as having received Jesus. He writes, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Our life of faith in Jesus is represented as receiving. This is crucial because receiving is an act which implies the very opposite of anything like merit. It is simply the acceptance of a gift. Like the earth takes in the rain, like the ocean receives the streams, like night accepting the light from the stars, so we, giving nothing, partake freely of the grace of God. We are not by nature wells, or streams, but merely cisterns into which the living water flows. We are empty vessels into which God pours his salvation. The act of receiving signifies a sense of realization. It makes the matter a reality. One cannot very well receive a shadow. We receive that which is substantial. So it is in the life of faith. In receiving him, Christ becomes real to us, not a metaphor or a mythical character, but a living person who existed in history, very man and very God. The act of receiving also signifies grasping or getting possession of. The thing which you receive becomes your own. You appropriate to yourself that which is given. When you receive Jesus, he becomes your savior. So much yours that neither life nor death will be able to rob you of him. Here at this table is represented God's gracious gift to us, 
Jesus Christ himself, given to us, not of our own deserving, but a gift. Not an imaginary character, but a real person, a real hero, a real savior. He is yours. So come, dear saints, and receive your present from God, his Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.